Hey guys, with sports betting season in full force with football here, you need a sports book with integrity and longevity like BetUS. You may already know this, but BetUS has been pioneers in the sports book industry for almost three decades, thriving and paying their loyal customer base. That is BETUS.com, and they have loads of bonuses. Join now or call 1 800 69 BetUS. That is 800 MyBetUS. You receive 125% sign up bonus by using bonus code SST125. That's SST125. They have re-up and referral bonuses. Also, BetUS is known among America's favorite sportsbook for lots of reasons. Bet on team and player props, loads of NFL futures, UFC matches, PGA golf, live betting on most sports. The online casino has hundreds of games. The race books has all the horse tracks. They have every bet type imaginable. Follow my lead and get your phone online and sports betting partner with integrity and longevity like I did. BetUS. You bet. You win. You get paid. Bet U.S. In the South, it's always college football season. And the king of college football reigns supreme all year long. Southern Sports Today proudly presents the Chuck Oliver Show. It's an inside look at everything college football. Now live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time to talk college football with the reigning king of college football, Chuck Oliver, on Southern Sports Today. Two questions for the UF fan base because currently it's their turn. It is the Chuck Oliver Show on a Monday. And my two questions for the Gators fan base, who and what? After someone answers your initial question of, and this is said in an angry Southern voice, how much is Mullins buyout? Okay. After you're up to date on that, Dan, do you know the number? Do you have any? I, I, can... I saw Saturday night. It was $12 million. All right. Dan just said, yeah, I saw Saturday night. You know why he saw it Saturday night? Because it started getting talked about Saturday night. And Dan was on the interweb, and he saw somewhere $12 million. After someone answers your question of how much is his buyout, Dan says $12 million. Okay. After you're up to date on the number and then commit other people's money to it, I will ask you who and what. Now, that part about committing other people's money, I just did it in my mind. When Dan said $12 million, do you know what immediately, boom, popped into my gray matter? Wow, it seems a little light. What? $12 million, Really? Is that all? I'm sure you figure in the staff and this, that, and the other. Oh, I'm sorry. Less of the staff because there's already been two firings. But you figure in the rest of the staff, and I don't know what the number gets to, but $12 million and some. All right. You have the number. You have approached all the bull gators at halftime, passed a hat, and you raised it. Who and what? Who are you going to hire? And, and and I really want to answer to this one. What do you think happens after the new coach that you have chosen takes over? And, and like, give me a timeline, too. Now, the who are you going to hire? Understand that that is just a question, not a statement. Do you know what the statement is? Who are you going to get better than that? See, that's not a question. That's you driving home the point that consider yourself lucky to have David Cutcliffe if you're Ole Miss. And there's a sliding scale for everybody. Be careful. You don't want to be Tennessee. You fired Phil Fulmer. 
I have never espoused, suggested, beat my shoe on a desk to drive home the point, hey, because you're scared, don't fire the wrong – you've got the wrong coach in place, don't fire him. I've never said because of fear about who you would be able to get next, mm, maybe we should just keep this guy. Mm-mm. And you've got the wrong people in, in charge. If leadership in your athletic department has anyone even like one brain cell going, hmm, well, what if we're Tennessee? What if we fire Phil Fulmer and then it's this guy and it was a Derek Dooley and Lane Kiffin and Butch and almost Greg Schiano and Jeremy Pruitt and the NCAA and now Josh. I have never talked about any program in the realm of, hey, hey, don't be Tennessee. You, you have the wrong coach. We all agree, but whew, you better keep him. Uh-uh. Whenever you talk about that, that means you have the wrong people in, in, in leadership positions. So I, it really is a question. All right, you fired Dan Mullen. Who are you going to hire? Because you know what the, the great part of the scale is? This one side of the scale, it's this is the UF program, and it's in Florida, and look, there's the swamp, and here's the facilities, and here's everything else, and, and that's why being head coach at Florida is one of the 11 five best jobs in college football. That's why, that's why it gets on that list. Do you know what is on the other side of the scale? And I'm telling you, even for the Florida job, there is somebody out here who's going to look at it and go, I don't want dysfunction. I don't want to go to a place where Steve Spurrier, now this is 20 years ago, but Steve Spurrier of all folks was like, mm, yeah, the fan base not jazzing me very much. I guess winning 10 games just doesn't mean that much anymore. And Ron Zook, now different leadership again, but a guy that you demoted from defensive coordinator and then a couple years later said, you know what, just run the whole team. You're going to be head coach now. To the way you've handled, boom, the way you handled McElwain, Dan Mullen now, if this is handled, and I don't think it should be handled, who and then what do you think happens when the new guy takes over if you attract the guy that you want? Because they look at it and go, you just did that to Dan Mullen? See, that's the only place for the conversation to go at this point because Dan has fired a coordinator now and Todd Grantham, gone, and then Hevesy, the O-line coach, gone. After you start firing assistant coaches... See, I credit Mullen for clearly understanding one truth about the coaching calendar. Once you start whacking your assistants, you start the clock on yourself, barring improvement. So what is the wise move? Wait as long as possible before you start whacking coordinators. I'll give him credit. He did the same thing with his quarterbacks. You wait as long as possible before you really pull your starter. Because if the second guy you put in... If he doesn't work out, now you pull both starters. I'll give Mullen credit. He understands as soon as I do this, the clock starts going. But this time, it's not on a backup quarterback. This time, it's on the guy on the sidelines. That's where the Florida program is as of today.
Catch the king of college football no matter where you go with a new Southern Sports Today app. Catch the best college football conversation in the South everywhere with the SST live stream and daily podcast. Downloaded now at the App Store and the Google Play Store. Now more of the best college football talk in the country. It's the Chuck Oliver Show. Georgia 43, Missouri 6. Missouri led. They did. It was 3-0. And I'm supposed to say something along the lines of Tyler Macon had it going and then Eli took him out and took out the rhythm and that threw him off. No, that's not what happened. He had two, I mean, just young, 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 young quarterbacks and both had a certain package of plays that they were going to debut with and Eli already had it worked out. I mean, you're talking both of them, folks. Short dog, tall weeds. Um, and Tyler Macon, who is a big-time dual-threat quarterback uh, prospect, um, he's still a freshman, um, he made some plays, and he's got some potential, but they were on the road in Athens, and it was never going to happen for him, and it really was not a competitive thing. Uh, Georgia's uh, measuring sticks weren't really involved with the Missouri Tigers this past Saturday. Now, they got an interesting something coming up on the road this uh, coming weekend at Rocky Top, playing Tennessee, and then it's Charleston Southern and Georgia Tech. So the regular season, not quite etched in stone yet for Georgia. I want to welcome on, uh, I'm going to call him a good friend of mine and the program, and uh, you can hear him anywhere you are in Central Georgia. If you don't hear his voice, you ain't listening. Warner Robbins, uh, I mean, you can read him in Athens, the Banner Herald, but Warner Robbins making all throughout Central Georgia. It's my good friend, Bill Shanks. Bill, how are you, brother? Happy Monday to you, Chuck. How are you? Doing okay. Uh, let's talk Georgia exiting uh, Missouri. First of all, let's talk health. Um, any information as far as uh, new injuries from Saturday's game? No, I'm, I don't think it's anything serious. We'll see what Kirby has to say today. But obviously, everybody's still kind of worried about Jamari Sawyer and what that situation is mm-hmm. going to be. But, you know, I, I, I kind of laughed last Friday when we were talking about the fact that Sawyer obviously was going to have to miss some time. And then of course the Adam Anderson situation and uh, you know, just, just to know that, that they were able to replace those two with two five-star prospects and Broderick Jones and, and MJ Sherman. If you need to know where the Georgia program is, what it, what it's become, there you go uh, to be able to do that. So, I mean, I, I think overall they're, they're they're getting healthier, and especially at receiver, Chuck. I mean, it's a very big deal for this team because we're, we we've obviously seen Kyrus Jackson, though he didn't catch a pass the other day, get back out it into it. Uh, Arian Smith called a pass the other day. Obviously, Jermaine Burton had a big game. Marcus Roseme, Jack Saint. So I think they're getting healthier. If we look at the quarterback position, um, just give me best that either you know or that you have boiled down. Uh, Stetson Bennett continues to start as of the second week of November. He continues to start. JT Daniels did take the field, and he got some extended run. Um, just give me your drill down on on where they are now and what you expect over the next month leading up to Atlanta. Well, I, I, I think that obviously when you've got an undefeated team, the fans are going to try to pick apart something we got to pick the scab on something, and obviously the quarterback situation is, is, is something, and it's a discussion. I'm not saying it's not worthy of that. But Coach Smart, Coach Munkin, believe that, that Stetson's the man right now, and we know the questions about, well, can he do that against Alabama? Can he do that in January? You know, Is it going to be able to do that on December the 31st in the semifinal game? I get it. I, I have that question too. But I, I think in a way I'm kind of trusting Coach Smart on this, Chuck, um, 
Look, if Stetson were to get in trouble against Tennessee or or Alabama or anybody else, the, the, I think the leash is going to be short where JT would be in there quick. And I just think he's more comfortable with Stetson and the mobility and, and, and the concern that he obviously still has about JT's mobility because of the injury is there. But, you know, Chuck, again, I'm going to go back to those receivers. I just think this is a very big, big deal for this team. And those receivers can make Stetson. And if you want to call him a good quarterback that may be mediocre in some people's eyes, some of those receivers might make a mediocre quarterback look pretty darn good. And I, I think there's just a comfort level with Stetson right now. And, and he's going to have to answer those questions when he plays in Alabama, if he's going to keep this job of whether or not he can do it against tougher competition. I get that. I know that, but I, I just think you, you got to trust Kirby. He's inside the bubble. He knows, what's going and what's clicking right now. And it's obviously he just feels so much more comfortable with Stetson. But I, I think, you know, the leash is not going to be long. Talking to my good friend Bill Shanks. Listen to him. You can get him at thesuperstations.com. It is all of Central Georgia and all the different stations you can hear him on as well as read him, Athens Banner Herald. Let's talk more Georgia Bulldogs here uh, just a little bit from Saturday. Um, I keep looking as you get, you know, four games, six games, eight games into a season, Bill. They're supposed to be, okay, now we – because the coaching is just too good in the SEC. It really is. Um, All right, now we've seen this accumulation of game film, and now there's this crack. There's this opportunity, a chance against the Georgia defense, and I still don't know what that is. I don't either. I I keep on asking the question, all right, well, first, I ask, you know, what skilled players can give Georgia's defense can some, some trouble? And then it's like, no, what offensive line can give Georgia's defense some trouble? And, you know, then, Chuck, I want to say, well, define trouble. <laughs> what, what, what is – I mean, if Tennessee scores 20 this week because of how their offense is doing, is that supposed to be trouble? I mean, I think Georgia will still win easily since Tennessee's giving up a lot of points. But I mean, what what is trouble? What 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 could we constitute as being a a push on this defense? And and I I just don't see it. I I don't know how someone can can try to craft a game plan against this defense with how they're playing right now. And and you know, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I mean, this is a dream scenario for Kirby Smart. He's a defensive guy, and. He he's got to feel privately. I mean, he'd never say this publicly. No. That this is this is what he's wanted since he got the job six years ago, right? I mean, a defense that just everywhere you turn around, there is a stud player. And and every week I ask the question, you know, what 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 is Mike Bobo? What what are the offensive coordinators that are facing this team? What is Tennessee this week? What is Josh? What is, what does he really think he can do? And I mean, I know they've got good players. They they're playing well. Kenan Hooker is doing very well. I get that. And they've got some skill players. But can their line of scrimmage stand up to Georgia's front seven? I, I just don't see it. I've got one, just one question about Tennessee and their approach, and it's Josh Heupel and that pace, et cetera. And it's something that you had mentioned or at least kind of breezed past a little earlier talking about something else. Um, you'd mentioned uh, Salyer's injury and Broderick Jones stepping in. And I'd already talked about, like, Chris Smith on defense when he got hurt. Um, we are yeah. seeing now the unfolding bill of when you stack class after class, elite class after class, that you can lose a left tackle for a week or two or whatever, and you still are rolling along. You can lose a safety. You can lose a corner. You can lose a, quote, lose an outside linebacker. Um, the depth is what 
is supposed to get most teams against Tennessee in that pace. I don't even think that's going to affect Georgia. That's just my opinion because I know that they get after it. They, they have giddy up to them. But I don't think that, that given Georgia's depth, it's really going to affect Georgia much. I don't either. I, I, I just don't either. I think the, the, the depth that he's put together – I mean, we got to remember, this is a coach that when he got the job had to go get Tyler Catalina to play left tackle. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you want really a, 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 a two ends of the spectrum type of situation of what he had to inherit and what he what he has now, it's night and day. But yeah, I mean, the ability for him to run people in and out of there on a on a real quick basis and to get those snaps and to not to not matter. I mean, you, you have to look at one through forty four with this team. It's it's not just one through twenty two. What what do you have one through forty four that can compete with Georgia? Because I, I I think everywhere you turn around, you're going to see a second stringer that's either gotten significant snaps or is a very good prospect that was highly rated out of high school. And, I mean, that's a championship-caliber team, Chuck. Well, Bill, I appreciate you making some time today. And uh, I know with George already handling their business, I'll see you in Atlanta in a few weeks, okay? Look forward to it, Chuck. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All right, amigo. Bill Shanks from the Bill Shanks Show, uh, Macon. Warner Robins all throughout Central Georgia, et cetera, and then also Athens Banner Herald. Uh, you can get him online, thesuperstations.com. That's their uh, network stations in Central Georgia there, and he covers the dogs. So that's what it is with Georgia, that even the one advantage, it, that's supposed to be baked in with Hypel. And I've always said that, you know, folks think that uh, it's just fatigue. That's part of it. And the advantage that you get when you go hurry up, no huddle, pace, tempo, you get it rolling, whatever the verbiage is, um, the one thing we always talk about is fatigue. And that's supposed to be real. And that's supposed to be part of it. I've always said that's not the only advantage. You know what the real advantage is? And I've mentioned this. The real advantage to me when an offense can successfully line up and snap it, 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 the real advantage is you get the defense to the point where they're simply trying to get lined up on sides with like three or four people with at least a hand on the ground, not just milling around and then the ball snapped. You talk about making it easy to block legs, be stand, two-point stance over the left guard. He'll block legs. So it gets the defense where they're not trying to call anything. They're running base every single snap. They're just trying to get lined up in a formation there's your advantage. Now, Tennessee may still be able to get Georgia on that, but as far as the depth and, and fatigue and all that, it should have less of an effect on Georgia than it does on any opponent the Vols have this season. more college football talk with the king of college football it's the chuck oliver show on southern sports today one stat has gone from and i'm saying folks as as recently as i'll say like the like the mid 80s maybe the late 80s there is a college football stat that has gone from essentially telling you who won to an indicator of who could have won to mostly irrelevant. 
Saturday, Tennessee and Kentucky got after it. Kentucky ran 99 plays, one time of possession, 46 minutes and 8 seconds to 13 minutes and 52 seconds. Tennessee won the game. Time of possession, folks, it used to be like nine-tenths of the law. Uh, Can't score if you don't have it. Tennessee's like, yeah, we're good with that. I think they had four scoring drives of four plays or less. Maybe three plays or four plays or less. Um, I know somebody who can answer all those questions. Um, Just a tremendous Saturday for the Vols. uh, And they're having a lot better season than I was thinking they would. Senior writer at Go Vols 247. Uh, He's a friend of the program and mine. It's Wes Rucker. Brother, how you doing today? Doing all right, man. How you doing? Never sure whether to call this morning, afternoon, or what, but I guess we'll we'll go with morning. Oh, yeah. It's it's a bottom of some hour uh, right now whenever you're listening. Um, Let's talk Saturday uh, yonder in Lexington. Um, How does that happen? You don't have the ball. You don't run very many plays, but points aplenty. Yeah, I used to say that the the average Tennessee scoring drive was like a was like a misfit song. You know, it was like two minutes, and and now it's like a it's like a guitar solo basically is how long these things last. I mean, I mean it. They had what five touchdown drives that were like less than a minute in that game, which yep. is just preposterous. And and it, it's. You know, it's like I've said this before, it's preparing for this Tennessee offense in a very different way, but not. It's kind of like preparing for a service academy because they do something that is so different from what you normally expect. I mean, they spread the field as wide as it can be spread. They go faster than any team in the country, but they spread it and they go hurry, but they also just a lot of times run it down your throat. And, and, and so it's just so hard to get ready for that. There is no scout team, say for maybe if Ole Miss ran its first team offense against its first team defense during practice, that would maybe give you an idea of what to expect. But it's not that their players are are, are, are so much better than the opponent's de- defensive players. That's not it at all. It's just the way they play. And they have players who fit what they do because the staff has made them fit, and they're just they're just hard to play. I mean, the defense does enough uh, a lot of times, and the offense just goes and goes and goes. Why is Jalen Wright so good? That's a good question. You know, I said going into the season that I thought he would have a couple of big games because he's just so explosive in the open field. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he got hurt in like the second game of the season. And then Lanith Whitehead, the redshirt freshman down there from, from Athens, he kind of took that spot. You know, he kind of drank his milkshake and became the number three guy. And then Whitehead gets hurt. And then the other two, the, the two co-starters get hurt. And, and then boom, down the end of the, the game, they're like, well, I guess Wright's up next, and, and they just they find ways. It's not just him, though. I mean, they played that second half without their starting tight end, you know, which he caught a touchdown in the first half. I mean, they've they played walk-ons at right tackle. they played walk-ons at running back. they played walk-ons at guard. They don't have a lot of depth. They really don't. It's kind of scary. Another guy, Morvin Joseph, went into the portal this morning, the linebacker. Saw that, yeah. they just keep They just keep plugging guys in, and it's not the kind of thing that could last forever, but they've been resilient so far. Yeah, and Tyon Evans, how is he health-wise? Because he took the field. That's a good question, but then he had one carry, and then he didn't come back in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know. He, he's had that ankle has been bothering him for a while, and I know he's a really tough kid. And it's kind of a shame because I think him as a player, and this is no disrespect to Small, who I think is a good player too. By the way, he only had four carries or so before he got hurt the other night. But, you, you know, it, it's like if Evans could be like a, have a fully healthy season, I think he could be a one-and-done guy. 
I think he'd be, he could be in the league next year. That's how highly I think of Tyon Evans. But that ankle's been bothering him. We'll see if he can get better this week. Maybe they thought they could finish the game without him and not push it. He was jogging on the sideline, but couldn't really do what you might call football movements too too well. Uh, and they've done that for every game. I mean, Evans and Small on a weekly basis for weeks now. You know, they just kind of on Saturday – they test them out in the morning, and if they're good enough, they try, and if they're not, they're not. So it's kind of a touch-and-go thing, really. All right. Um, I'm not trying to crack wise here uh, because I'm asking, and you're like the fifth person I've asked, um, how did Joe Milton win this job in August? That must have been a heck of a 29 practices. Um, yeah. What, what happened? I'll tell you. I'll tell you the same thing that I saw a little bit because we saw some some camp then, you know, and and we saw and we talked to a lot of people in the program, and I cannot emphasize this enough. It was crystal clear from about the second week of camp on that Joe Milton was the best quarterback in that camp. It, it's not that the other two were terrible by any means. It's just that Milton was phenomenal. He was hitting every throw. He's a tank who can get in the open field and run. I mean, you see the kid every pregame, every day, 6'5", 250, he does a standing backflip. He's just an, he's one of the most physically gifted, talented, athletic quarterbacks I have ever seen at this level, period, full stop, end of sentence. But then the ball started going in a real game, and the lights came on, and he was just okay. He wasn't terrible. People say he's terrible. He wasn't terrible. He was just okay. And then he got hurt. And then they plugged Hendon Hooker in, and lo and behold, you know, the guy who I thought was going to be Tennessee's starter until Milton came here uh-huh. uh, ended up getting the ball, and he hadn't given it back. I mean, it's just one of those deals where, you know, Milton was better in camp. And if you want to be a coach and you want your players to take you seriously, you play the guys who earn it. You play the guys who play the best every day in practice. That's how you win over your locker room is by doing that. And Milton was the guy, and everybody knew it. Uh, but then the, the lights came on, and it was a different story. You know, I always talk about I love Saturdays because you can be just a stud, even in the SEC, and you're not even an NFL prospect. Um, I mean, Jake Gaines, a kid who was a safety at UAB, I was talking about him a, f- a few weeks ago, transfers to Georgia when they shut down the program, leads the team in tackles. Not an NFL prospect in the least. Um, I have to imagine Beasley and Banks, that they have to be the most productive pair of SEC linebackers I know I've seen in a minute without any advanced billing. Um not to be producing the way they are. Uh, talk about those two because they had another banger. They, I bet they had 30 tackles on Saturday. Yeah, they had 28 between them. And, and I'll tell you, though, I'll be honest with you, I, man, I, I think that was one of their worst games of the season. I think – and Kentucky's offense is – is physical, right? Kentucky, it's built to you know, do that. Get, it is. You know, they're going to you – know, Rodriguez and those guys, those cats, they just – they run right at you. I mean, they are physical, and then they hit you with some little passes here and there. Uh, they're a tough physical offense to face, and that's not – I mean, Tennessee's linebackers, they just – their run fits weren't great in that game. and They got caught out in space a couple times. Banks has had some discipline issues in terms of getting 15-yard penalties. That's an area where Tennessee – it's either with those guys getting better – or they got to recruit better, get in the portal. You know, they got to get better there. They thought, you know, Juwan Mitchell, the guy from Texas, yeah. leading tackler last year, they thought he was going to be the guy right. there. Uh, but he shows up with a bad shoulder, and they couldn't get it right in time, and it gets worse. So he has to get has to have surgery and get shut down. So, yeah, it's, it's a tough situation. Um, but, they've, they, you know, they, they've just they've done enough, right? Because behind them, 
the third inside linebacker is a sixth year or fifth or sixth year senior who had played like four games before this year. The two guys behind that are walk-ons. So that's their situation. So those guys, they've had to rely on them and, and they've done, you know, they've done okay more than they haven't. And like you said, they have been productive. They've gotten after it. You know, they've not missed a ton of tackles. Oh, I, um, yeah, Wes, I always say, if you're not going to make plays, at least make tackles. Yes, yes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, how many years – and I don't say this to be mean to Kentucky, but how many years did Kentucky have a random linebacker who led the league in tackles yeah. because he was the guy on that defense who could tackle? He, he, he Sometimes he was an NFL guy, sometimes he wasn't, but he had like 140 tackles or something every year because he just made the tackle. And, and Theo Jackson, he's linebacker-ish, isn't he? Sort of? Yeah, he, he's been the real feel-good story of this team. There's been a bunch of feel-good stories on this team. Theo Jackson was like – I mean, he, I, I, I refer to him in print as the much maligned Theo Jackson because his first couple of years, I'll tell you, Bob Shoup, when he was Tennessee's defensive coordinator, thought that Jackson was a diamond in the rough. That kid out of Nashville, he just loved him. He said, this is a big-time player. I'm so glad that he's going to Tennessee. I don't know what these people are thinking, not offering him. And then they, that staff really likes him. And then Pruitt and his staff come in there, and they just they don't like him. So, you know, he doesn't bend his hips well enough. You know, it doesn't, his feet aren't quite as quick as you'd like him to be. His lateral movements just – and they played him out of necessity. But they, they really – they didn't love him. And the play on the field, honestly, I don't blame him. Uh, and then the, the staff comes back in, Willie Martinez, who actually did recruit him to Tennessee years and years ago, is back now. And he loves Theo. And he said, listen, man, you're my, you're my nickel. You're my star. I believe in you. And the kid has gone out there and made plays at all three levels, uh, despite having a couple injuries here and there. He's been all over the field. He's been tough. He, he's been incredibly – I mean, despite being a, having a couple injuries, there are some games where he's played like 100 snaps. I mean, it, it's it, – it's, he and, and defensive lineman Matthew Butler are like Ironmen out there. Those guys are making plays. They're all over the field. And, and it's it's been a really good feel-good story because a lot of Tennessee fans, if they're being honest – will tell you that they were not super excited about Theo Jackson being a super senior, and a lot of them are saying the exact opposite now. Yeah, Butler's one of those as well. Yeah, it's funny. You know, last week when you were talking about Banks, I want to go back real quick. Uh, somebody told me last week that they did the math, and he's averaging 1.5 personal fouls per week. Um, Basically, yeah. So, so, yeah, it's like, well, you got to round off the, the edges there, son. And, well, yeah, uh, it used to be – yeah, I used to call it the uh, – and rest in peace because off the field this was a really, really good man, and I hate that he passed away so soon. But I used to call it the Paris Harrelson Award every year for the guy who had the most personal foul penalties on the team because Paris was the world's nicest guy off the field. Yep. And on the field he was a real buzzer. A creature to, to be say, feared. You know, you know, he was. And, and Jeremy Banks has kind of taken that mantle in terms of being on the field the guy who just you know it's like it's like he it's either he doesn't hear the whistle or he doesn't care i'm no. not sure what it is was paris was he 56 uh 55 56 what number was he gosh i wish i could remember now yeah you know I'm what an old man if i'd asked you when you were 30 you would have known all right wes i appreciate 100% you. i would have yeah appreciate you so much man thank you so much Anytime, man. All right, Wes Rucker from 24-7 Sports. Yeah, Paris Harrelson turned into an NFLer for a, uh, for a while and um, just a big, rugged dude coming off the edge. Um, so I appreciate Wes coming on. But, um, yeah, that's what, you know, and I've asked that question before. Is he making tackles or is he making plays? When your defense isn't good, tackles are enough. You know, it's that phrase, six-yard sh- sheriff. Well, at least make the tackle. Don't let the safety lead the team in tackles. 
And so they've got basically, you know, I'd say they got two linebackers running around just stacking up tackles. And that's literally true. Two linebackers. They don't have anybody else they really want to send out there except for Jackson again, who really is a defensive back. Um, but he is two things. He's a little bit bigger, like he's just over 200. And he's an old man compared to so many other folks on the roster. So whether you've got a freshman or a walk-on or whatever, you've got a six-year senior who knows everything and is tough, all right, won't you play near the line of scrimmage a little bit and we'll pretend you're sort of the linebacker. Um, so they're trying to, you know, it's that fr- fake it till you make it. That's it. Fake it till you make it. I think Kentucky, in fact, Kentucky does have a better roster. And Kentucky was at home. And Kentucky had a specific game it wanted to play. And guess what? It played it. Kentucky tries to, I mean, they don't have any, it's not tempo, get to the line, snap it real quick. But they got the ground game kind of rolling in good chunks. 99 offensive snaps and Tennessee would get the ball back for three or four plays. And then score. And all right, Kentucky, here you go. Bayless Jones running free. Peyton, and as uh, as Wes said, that uh, it wasn't even like Jabari Smalls. He wasn't even part of the game, really. So it was just an, as impressive in a tiny, tiny, tiny little window of possession as could be. And uh, Tennessee cashed in on it, folks. I was talking last week that um, you know, they're essentially they're they're bowl eligible because they st- they were at four and four. And I said way back Tennessee, who I thought was going to have the worst defense in the SEC. Tennessee, who I said it would be coaching malpractice, the phrase I used. Coaching malpractice for a brand-new staff that runs that offense with two new quarterbacks to go that quick? Are you kidding? Let's run a bunch of plays. Let's go real fast. And, and our defense stinks. What? And somehow it's working. I said on October 9th they got bowl eligible. They beat South Carolina. And I said they still have South Alabama and Vanderbilt, and I would project wins for that. They're not beating Georgia Saturday. Um, I would project wins for the game against the Jags and the Doors. Well, they kind of fast-forwarded all of that. They beat Kentucky. So now you're looking at potentially, possibly seven wins. Seven wins? We're going bowling to, hey, wait a minute. We've got a really excited fan base in Knoxville. Maybe our seven-win season will get us to an eight-win or possibly nine-win level of a bowl game because our folks will travel. That's potentially. Tennessee's still got to finish out November best they can. All right, we're going to break. Wrap up our one next. Now back to Southern Sports Today and the Chuck Oliver Show to throw going left now he did drop the ball Aggies have got it and it's a touchdown Michael Clemens Brad Nessler he and Gary Danielson proud Purdue grad Jamie Erdahl they were out in College Station Saturday Texas A&M 20 Auburn 3 and if you heard just one play from the entire game and you saw the final score, 20 to 3, you're like, all right, well, that was a big man scooping score. 24 yard fumble return, by the way, by Clemens, Aggies defensive lineman. 
So you'll say, well, if that was one touchdown and you take that off the board and it was the only touchdown of the game, well, I guess they went for two and kicked a bunch of field goals. Yeah, that's what it was. Auburn's defense did not surrender an offensive touchdown. What they did, though, is just they gave up drives. And I mean just the ground game from A&M and and credit A&M. Uh, they just ripped off some gains, man. And Spiller and Achain and whomever else, uh, they had a just they had windows where they were very effective, and Calzada had windows where he was very effective. Roger McCurry played his tail off, his best game of the season. Um, but it was a story of the A and M ground game and Calzada taking advantage when it was there. And, again, never getting in the end zone, but getting close enough for four field goals. And then uh, Bo Nix had just a really, really tough stretch where he had one turnover and then he had another turnover. And the second one turned into a scoop and score, and boom, back it goes. And so, again, 20-3 to was the final. Auburn really didn't do anything on offense. And it was a combination of there was some bad backyard bow. There was an offensive line, and I'm going to say that this is, this is credit to Auburn. Here's a compliment. The compliment is, I was watching the game Saturday and thinking, why isn't the offensive line playing better? Do you know if you go back as recently as last season, I would be watching the game, and if Auburn's offensive line played poorly, I would go, yeah, uh uh-huh. That, folks, I'm not being, you know, wiseacre. That's that's advancement. I'm watching go. They're on the road against that bunch from College Station. I'm like, well, aren't they playing better? Because they've been playing better. Because they are better. Saturday, they were not. Saturday, they walked in with lunch money, and it was gone. That's how dominant that Texas A&M defense was. So it can be a measuring stick and a help, and you would rather always get the checklist of what to improve on following a win. Auburn has to pay the price, though. They got to pay the price of a loss, but it got. If we're going to play big boy football, because I said last week, conversationally, mathematically, sure, let's talk Auburn running the table and winning the Iron Bowl and and what could happen. I was like, sure, we'll talk that. It's like seems we're advancing things. Like they got Saturday in College Station, you know, plenty to concentrate on. They're better. Texas A and M, man, give them credit. After that two week stretch. To turn it around and be where they are now, which I think is going to, I think is going to have them finish second in the division and go to a really nice bowl game just outside the playoffs. Um, that's what I think it's going to happen. But give them credit again for turning that around. What up, Dan? Well, you almost wonder though if Aggie fans soon enough will be like, hmm, wouldn't that same thing happen in Gainesville, Florida? I mean, is that something we have to worry about here? Which I don't think it is because I do believe that the effort is at least there to be able to improve the personnel that you have on the field. I can't say the same about the other. Yeah, and I do. I don't want to throw you off. You got your own point coming up, but I did want to check in today. I made a note. Uh, Texas is not back. So no. j- go ahead. No, they're not. I mean, you know, soon enough, maybe the uh, therapy monkey was needed. I, I just don't know. Uh, I kind of, you know, to kind of get to the overarching point here is – I want to go back to the point that you brought up earlier about Dan Mullen with the two questions that he has to have answered, or at least that Florida fans want to have answered about him and their program. And something that you brought up that I is one of my favorite things in all of coaching, and that is when you start making voluntary coaching changes that are more or less told to you, hey, you have to make this. 
then you're exactly right. You have deployed your initial shoot. Now you've got your emergency parachute out. There is no other parachute after that. The only other time, Chuck, that I can point to this working out was 2017. Remember, Notre Dame fans were talking about even at the beginning of that season, Brian Kelly ain't it. We need to get this guy out of here. As a matter of fact, I even heard a guy who told me who follows Notre Dame very closely and would know said, there's a thought that maybe even Jim Harbaugh could be here. But he went out and nailed both of his coordinator hires. He went out and got Chip Long. He went out and got Mike Elko. Both of those seemed to work out. And he was able to get Clark Lee and Tommy Reese and everybody else that he's had there now. And the program has found themselves in a much better place. For Dan Mullen, it's going to have to be, you will have to hire guys who are dynamos in recruiting. That is going to be the number one priority for you because I would say that this coaching staff very much has an NFL mindset without really being good enough to be that caliber of a coach, Chuck, but also as well the fact of recruiting me inside an 18-year-old's living room. No, I'm way above that. I don't do that. I'm, I'm here because I'm a great football coach. You can get away with that in the 70s and 80s. You can't do that now. You have to wow you have to woo you have to do all of those things to be able to get kids to come to your campus and I think the other part of it as well is like I said with Todd Grantham I don't think he's a bad football coach as a matter of fact a guy who played for him in the NFL that I know very well said X's and O's a tremendous guy but in terms of a guy who's willing to adjust and willing to say "Hmm, maybe I'm doing this wrong he ain't that guy yeah every 17 year old recruit has turned into the actor who I don't read I'm all for only all right, I'm not I'm not going through your script. We will break. I'm back with hour 2.